This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans. And today I'm talking with someone who's written a lot of books over the years, but until now, she's never done a cookbook. Jen Hatmaker grew up with a father who was a pastor in the Baptist church, moving the family from Kansas to a series of small southern towns throughout her childhood. For a long time, though, she's been a diehard Texan, which is very evident not only in the food she loves, but also her fierce independent streak. Her new cookbook, Feed These People, breaks just about every rule and tradition you've ever seen in a cookbook, from the ingredients to the directions to the occasional curse word. But that's what makes it fun. We'll talk about all that, her deep love of the Texas Longhorns, and why she built a 30-person table on this week's Biscuits and Jam. Well, Jen Hatmaker, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. I'm so excited to be here. There's so many of my favorite things. Biscuits, jam, you. Yay! There's no downside here. <laughs> so, Jen, the last time I saw you was in person in Birmingham, and you and Tyler came up to the food studios and looked around, and your cookbook, I think, was hot off the presses. It was. And in fact, somebody in the offices had just shot a whole People magazine deal with a recipe out of my cookbook. And they're like, hey, it's weird that you're here. Look what we just did. And there's my stuff right there in one of the test kitchens. Such a cool place. Well, I hope you're not tired of talking about the cookbook. Never. You've written a lot of best-selling books, but this is the first time that you've ever written a cookbook. What was different about that process for you? I guess the short answer would be everything was different about the process. It's so many elements I've never done before. First of all, of course, all the like test kitchen stuff, which for someone like me who just kind of did all my own recipes and all my own cooking, that translates to somewhere around 700 million hours (laughs) in your own personal kitchen. I think that's about how much time I spend. About 700 million hours doing a recipe over and over and you almost have it, but it's not quite right. You have to do the whole thing over again. And I'm not a precise cook. So when I first turned in the first round of recipes, my poor editor, who's edited so many beautiful, professional cookbooks, was just like, this is fun. We love your tone. We love the humor. We're going to need some more measurements than what you have included. We understand what you mean by some, but the average cookbook reader is going to need a little bit more intel. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Right, let me just redo everything and figure out how much I put in. It was bananas. Well, it definitely seems to break a lot of the rules of a traditional cookbook. I mean, in every single way, in terms of the way... You talk about the ingredients, the way you talk about the process, everything is different about it. Did you get pushback on that or was that encouraged? You know, I've been writing about food just online in an absolutely casual home cook way for a decade. So I love food, obviously, and I love cooking. 
And so I've just been throwing stuff up helter skelter ad hoc on Facebook and Instagram for so long, just rambly, long, bossy, sarcastic. I've swear words in it. I wasn't trying to do anything professional. I was just being myself and writing a recipe. So when it came time to kind of shop the proposal, I had eight publishers and we're having meetings with all of them. And they've got the proposal and they've got the sample writing. I'm telling you, by the time we got down to the final three, in every single meeting, I would just finally be like, did you guys actually read the sample recipes. Show of hands. I need to make sure that you are real clear about what my deal is. I don't have another way. So if I need to clean this up or polish this up in some way, that is not a skill set that I have. So I just need to make sure that what I have submitted to you is a possibility in a publishable book. And so at that point, <laughs> they kind of knew what they were getting. And we just had such a fun time in the creative process. Turns out there are some pretty clear rules, quote unquote, in the cookbook world, but they're not hard and fast. You can play kind of fast and loose with a lot of it and it still works and people still love to read it. And so I think we push some boundaries. I wasn't doing it on purpose. That's just all I know to do. So it was a blast. I loved writing the cookbook. Well, I can tell how much fun you had and I had fun reading it and I want to talk more about it in a minute, including some recipes. But before I do that, tell me a little bit about where you grew up. You're born in Kansas, right? Yeah, that's right. But you moved around a lot. And yeah. I'm wondering, what was the place that felt most like home to you? I was born in Kansas. Both of my parents were born and raised in Kansas, my grandparents. So Kansas is the anchor state for my whole family on both sides, but I only lived there until I was three. And then all the way until my eighth grade year, I moved Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana. So always in the South, which contributed to this food point of view I already had and brought a lot of dimension to it and particularly Louisiana. But I came back to Kansas in eighth grade. And then my parents were there for another 20 plus years. So I would say growing up, it would be Kansas. However, I have now lived in Texas since 1998. So this is home. I'm in Austin and I've been here 25 years. I have never lived anywhere even remotely that long, not even a fraction of that long. My kids are born and raised here this is home. I used a Pied Piper slash family peer pressure approach and hooked and then drug in all my family members. And so now at this point, after my sustained campaign and like propaganda, my parents live here, my two sisters and my brother and all their families, we have transferred the family unit to Central Texas, and this is where we all are now. And so Texas is at this point so deep in my bones, it's as if I was born at the Alamo. <laughs> this is what we know. This is all my kids know. And I think this is where we'll stay. So there's not really relatives, family back in Kansas that... Not anymore. No. Yeah, we're all here. To be honest with you, Sid, and I recommend this for anybody who is trying to get their family to move to them, what I had at the time 
were the only grandchildren. And I used them with impunity. I had no shame. I had no restraint. I used them as bait and it worked. That was your leverage. Yeah. (laughs) So Jen, you grew up around the church to say the least, I would say immersed in the church. Your father was a pastor. And when you think about the churches that you were a part of, what was the church that made the biggest impression on you? Are you thinking of one place? Is it one building? Is it one community? What was the church that you think about the most when you think about growing up that way? My dad was a pastor, but a very, very rogue pastor, if you will. So even though I kind of had all my come up into the Southern Baptist Church, that was the church that my parents were raised in, that was the church that I was raised in, my dad was in recreation and sports. So he ran that branch of church and he was just as wild, just as wild as a March hare. And so, yes, I was raised in the church, but also by a real funny dad with a saucy mouth. And so I had an interesting upbringing. But to me, if I'm going to pick which church was maybe the most formative for me, the one that had the most lasting impact, the one that grew the deepest roots, it'd be the church I was raised in. And it was called Emmanuel Baptist. And it was in Wichita, which is where I lived. My grandpa, my dad's dad, was a founding deacon back in the olden days when they were just hanging out the first shutter on that church. My dad grew up there. And then later he came back on staff for 20 years. And so I'm the oldest of four kids. So me and all my siblings, that's the church of our childhood. And so when I think about being just a sponge toward worldview and spiritual direction and perspective and ideology and a general belief system, that's the church I think of. That's the one that sort of shot me out of the gates. Church has been a very meandering journey for me since then. But that'd be the one that I'd point to if you said, what's the church that raised you? That's the one. Yeah, I realize that we could probably talk about this for the next two hours. Yeah. But yeah, I was just wondering about that place that you kind of first think of. Yeah. There's a long history of connection between church and food in the South, right? Church cookbooks, the whole church potluck tradition. I mean, this goes way, way back. What was that experience like for you? Was that something that was part of your growing up? Those memories are so crystal clear, I can practically taste them right now in 2023. Certainly the church potluck. That's where I learned to eat. That taught me to be an eater. Everybody brings their A game to the church potluck, right? No one's phoning it in. There's no store-bought cookies. This is the all-star roll call. My grandma would bring fried chicken. I would walk a hundred miles barefoot to get that fried chicken right this second. Particularly in our Louisiana days, even our Arkansas days, there wasn't a dish on the table that wasn't doused in cream, cheese, butter, cornflakes, Ritz crackers, cream of mushroom soup. These were the building blocks of the casseroles and they were delicious. And anybody who says otherwise is lying. I learned to pile up my plate. I learned that dessert gets its own plate at the potluck. (laughs) And then of course, I love that you mentioned the church cookbook. I have one still. And it's typed on almost little index cards. I love those because the directions are sketchy. 
just like I like. <laughs> right. <laughs> you kind of take your best guess, you know? I guess this all goes in a pot. I can't really tell, but let's try it a few ways and see if we can get to end game. And no pictures, of course. <laughs> no pictures. And they have funny names like Aunt Cindy's Cordbrand Casserole. You know, who's Aunt Cindy? We don't know. We don't know who that is. <laughs> I love it. It had that personal touch. And then, of course, I had my mom's church cookbook. And so it's greasy and it's stained and it's waterlogged and it was clearly used well, which I love. I can flip through it now and go, oh, those were my mom's favorite recipes. Those pages are ruined with splatter. So it has a heart to it that we sometimes miss in our beautiful, glossy, four-color cookbooks that we all have now. Yeah, totally. I think about my mom's shelves, and they're full of all these old books that were spiral-bound, and they're not terribly well-produced, but the best recipes ever, you know, still. <laughs> and surely your mom had the joy of cooking. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the Bible on all their shelves. We were going to be real serious about it. We had the joy of cooking we could revert to. But 75% of them are probably from Louisiana. I learned a lot in Louisiana. I lived in Houma which is way down on the Southern edge. It's South of New Orleans, if you can fathom such a place. And that is the place that taught me how to eat like an eater. The second day I ever lived there, it was the summer before my fourth grade year. And so I'm nine years old. And what do I know? I'm coming from Wichita. We thought something was spicy if it had black pepper in it. I can barely understand everybody. Like the Cajun accent is so thick. It is so French. Everything is so different. And we get invited over to some strangers' houses who are welcoming us in because we're the new family. And out comes the crayfish poured on the table. And there was fried alligator put in front of my nine-year-old self. Fried alligator. You could have bowled me over with a feather. Where are we? What are we doing? How are we going to eat here? But, you know, they get you. They get you because it's delicious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so now we have crawfish boils every single year in this house, come hell or high water. I learned how to eat and I learned how to eat spicy. So thank you, Louisiana. Taught me well. So you were talking about your mom. When you think about the cooks in your family that really stood out, is she the champion or are there a number of people that could really cook? I'm so sorry to say this because I love her. I do. She has been a fabulous mother. She's a wonderful grandmother. She loves me well. I enjoy her company. She is a stand-up girl, but my mom's not a great cook. And she's a much better cook now, but growing up, frankly, she didn't have time for it. And also remember it's the 80s where real food was getting swapped out and it was revolutionary. All of a sudden we didn't get butter anymore. We got country crock and everything was fat free and my dad got obsessed with oat bran. It was just a weird time. It was not a good time. Lean cuisine. Yeah, all the frozen stuff and the fat-free. Oh, it was just trash. So my mom had four kids. She worked full-time. She was going back to college to get another degree. You know what? We were fed. That's the best I can say. We didn't go hungry. We ate food and we lived. But my mom was not a great cook. Now my grandma, my grandma could tear it up. My grandma could burn it down in a good way. I have real strong memories sitting at my grandma's elbow, watching how she did. What was her name? Faye King. She was very glamorous, very, very fancy. My grandma was, in the best possible way, gaudy, 
and over the top. Here's a good example. She had a full length to the ground, fluffy, enormous black mink coat. She'd wear it to the store. She'd have rings on every finger. My grandma died when she was 94. And at that point, her body was barely functioning. She was in a wheelchair. She could not move or walk or any of it. That last week, she was on hospice. She had her acrylic fingernails done three days before she died. And we were like, Grandma is not going to the arms of Jesus with grown-out fingernails. She will go with her acrylic and her mink, and that is how she will be welcomed into heaven. She is a one of a kind. <laughs> wow. Oh, what a story. After the break, I'll talk more with Jen Hatmaker about how she fell in love with cooking, the magic of a 30-person table, and her beloved Texas Longhorns. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head compromise elsewhere. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the author, speaker, and podcast host, Jen Hatmaker. So, Jen, you were not always a cook. Correct. You talk in the book about cooking being something that you had to do. You have five kids. You had all these mouths to feed. When did you really start to get into cooking and really start to enjoy cooking? Because we did not grow up in a culinary house, it was just kind of what is enough food to be on the table so that nobody's still hungry. I just did not have a strong food point of view at all. And I didn't take a lot of delight in food. I certainly didn't know how to make it or cook it or prepare it or even envision it. My youngest two kids are adopted, so I didn't have them yet. I just had the top three and they were little. They were like two, four, and six maybe. And I remember always being so angry at them because they were hungry. And one of those years on the first day of the year, and I'm not a big one for New Year's resolutions, frankly, because I just never keep them. But for some reason that year, I just must have been contemplative. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, let's everybody calm down. What is one thing that I could maybe attempt to do slightly better this year. That's it. No big goals. Don't be impressed. Don't throw a parade. I wasn't like trying to have an overhaul. What can we barely improve on this year? That was as high as the bar went. And I just thought to myself real clear, maybe cooking. I have to do it every day. Everybody here wants to eat. 
why does it have to be a drag every single day? Other people like it. Other people seem to think there's something to it. I wonder if I could be one of those people. And on the spot, I just decided to change my mind about food. Just like that. I started watching the Food Network. That was my culinary school. And I bought cookbooks. I got a good knife. I just started reading recipes and thinking, well, it's just food. Worst case scenario, we eat cereal for dinner. How bad can it be? And I just started loving it. Because cooking isn't actually that hard. And it's not that fancy. It's not even that technical. And so getting in there with new ingredients and new ideas and kind of a fresh interest in the whole enterprise absolutely changed me. And now cooking dinner is the hour I most look forward to every single day. Well, and that hour, I think you talked about this in the book, but it's your kind of alone time. It's your moment to yourself to kind of just focus on a task Step by step, have a glass of wine. It's all yours, right? Even just hearing you describe it, I'm like, ah, why doesn't everybody love to cook dinner? Yes, that's my hour. And I'm not one of these good moms that invites everybody in to help me. I don't want you in my kitchen. This is my hour. That signals for me, the workday's over. It is time to transition into dinner and like just bringing the family together around food. I can't think of anything better. Can we agree on a movie? Absolutely not. We cannot agree on anything, but we agree on food. So that will bring us together around a table, lickety split. I want to ask you about that table. By the way, we haven't said the name of the book. It's called Feed These People. On the cover, there's a picture of you and you're holding this big, beautiful salad. And behind you, there's this big table. There's a lot of people gathered around it. They're laughing. They're having a good time. Talk to me about that table and what that meant to you. That table is super meaningful to me. And I was willing to go down with the ship to get that table on the cover. I had to kind of fight for it because not surprisingly and understandably, most cookbook covers are in a kitchen. I get it. I do. But that table meant so much to me. And it was kind of the heart of the book. And so I went a handful of rounds to get that one on the cover. I was married for 26 years. That's a really long time. Every second of my adult life. And I lost my marriage at the very beginning of the pandemic. And it was surprising and shocking. And I didn't want it. And it just felt like everything in the whole world fell apart at once. I remember that first year And I'm here with all the kids. We're all just at the bottom of the ocean, frankly. And I remember thinking at one point that year, I'm never going to be happy again. I really had that thought. And I thought, I'll find a way to kind of limp through the rest of my years. And it'll always just be at half mast. And that's probably just the best I can hope for. And I remember maybe at the year mark, sitting on my porch thinking, I don't want that to be my story. I'm in my 40s. Life is not over. There are memories to be made. There are people to love. There are kids who still live here. I've got siblings. I have parents. I have this arsenal of best friends. There is more to live for. And so weirdly, I just decided on the spot. I have no idea where this came from. I'm like, I'm going to build a table in my backyard a huge one. It's going to be a whole deal. I'm going to build a 30-person table 
which is an obnoxious thing to do, especially during COVID. And then I just said to myself, I'm going to fill it. I will fill it one day again. I don't know when, I don't know with who, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know when I'll be ready, but I'm going to build that table and they'll come. And I have since, oh, it makes me feel choked up. I have since filled that table dozens and dozens and dozens of times, Christmases, Thanksgivings, crawfish boils, graduations, parties, you name it. I have jammed that table with new friends, old friends, family, filled it with every delicious food you've ever heard of. And that table just became a symbol of new life for me. And so I just said, look, thank you for letting me write a weird cookbook with swear words in it. I have one last request. I need this table filled with my people on the cover. And so they conceded. And that is what that cover's about. Well, it's a great cover because it's real. It looks like everybody's having a good time. And I think they probably were during that shoot. I mean, either that or they're really good fakers, you know? The wine on that table was real. So I want you to know we were all having a good time. They're like, I hope you get your shot. But in the meantime, we're going to drink all this wine and hopefully you get what you came for. So it was great. That's all my people. That's my family and all my best friends back there. But, you know, that table has even more meaning for you because it's all about welcoming everyone, right? Everyone is welcome at your table. And when you think about the notion of Southern hospitality, it's so much bigger than entertaining. Yeah. It's about everyone is welcome at this table. That's right. Was that part of what you were thinking about as well? 100%. That's the magic. The magic is not that you're a good cook or that you know how to build a stunning dinner party menu. None of that even really plays in. Is it nice? Sure. It's just a bonus the people around the table and the chairs. That's the magic. I know that simply by being an invited guest. I know when I walk away from someone's dinner or party, what has actually made me feel loved and seen and like I belong there, like I'm included. It has nothing to do with what they fed me and everything to do with the warmth of the home and this open door policy where people go, just grab another chair. I love that. I try to run a family like that. I mean, with five kids, you can imagine, but the text will come in or the call. Can so-and-so come for dinner? Can so-and-so stay for dinner? Can I bring so-and-so? Of course. Yes. There's always another chair. There's always another chair. That is my philosophy, not just about eating, but about life. And I've been such a delighted recipient of hospitality so many times, more times than I can ever count. I watched my grandma do it. I watched my mom do it. I watched her friends do it. It's been modeled for me my entire life. And so I'm excited to watch my kids start doing it. So of course now, most of them are out of the house. They're calling home going, I'm having a dinner party for four people, which is a big deal when you're 23. How do I make so-and-so? Oh, I just couldn't be more pleased. Yes, I've done something right. <laughs> well, and now they have a book, you know, that you can say, look, just open up the book. It's all there. That's right. The book is filled with their pictures. So. <laughs> all right. So can we talk about recipes for a second? Yeah. Um, all right. I want to talk about the fajitas al guajillo. Am I saying that right? You are. I made them on Sunday night. And I'm telling you, they were outstanding. Aren't they weird? They were so good. And my daughter said that they were the best she's ever had. And she does not always say that. Yeah. They were 
spicy, yeah. but not too spicy. We put in four chipotles and oh. it was just perfect. Yeah. And I love the fact that you could make everything in one skillet. It was so good. I'm so delighted. You're the first person that I've ever done an interview with around any cookbook related things that wants to talk about those fajitas. I'm obsessed with those fajitas. And of course you read the whole story. I copied them straight out of an iconic restaurant here in Austin and it's interior Mexican food, which is why it's unusual. It has pecans in it, it has raisins. It's so weird. I know that sounds like some white people stuff, but I'm telling you it's interior Mexican and it is just delicious. It's from Polvo's. Have you ever been to Polvo's? No, uh-uh. You have have eaten in Austin. Oh, yeah, but I have not been to Polvo's, no. You can't come here again without going there. That's just your marching orders. It's just iconic food. And it took me a long time to figure out that recipe. It's not really online. You just kind of have to piecemeal it together. The chipotle and adobo is so clear, but it takes some finagling to get the marinade right. And I probably had to make that recipe eight times before it finally tasted like I wanted it to taste. But I'm so happy that you made it. I'm thrilled. That's the best news of my day. Well, you nailed it. And the whole family loved it. Although I got to say one thing. Okay. I followed the recipe, every ingredient, every step. I could not put raisins in my fajitas. (laughs) You know I understand this. You know that I do. I only bring you what this iconic recipe is because that is the way that they've served it to me 50 straight times at Polvo's that I've ordered it. Look, I hear you. I do. I'll even accept the critique for it. It's not my fault I fell in love with that particular recipe, but I did. Please promise me that if you make it again, you'll add them and just see. Okay, I promise. I promise. I'll try it. I just got to that. And I was like, you know, I just, yeah. I, I, <laughs> the weirdest thing I ever saw in my entire life. But the pecans, everything, it was so good. Speaking of sweet things, I love that there is only one dessert in this entire cookbook. And it gets its own chapter. I don't think I've ever seen a Southern cookbook with just one dessert. So tell me about the one that you picked and why. I know. My editor was like, oh, Jen, can you make one thing easy? I'm like, I know. I'm sorry. So first of all, it's just personal preference. I'm just not a sweet person. I am salty, savory, spicy. That's my trifecta. However, my absolute favorite dessert, if it's on the menu, never resist it, is cream brulee. It's, to me, the perfect dessert that's ever been created. Like, it cannot be improved upon. It should not be improved upon. It is just the perfect food. So it got one whole chapter. There's a dessert chapter with one entry called cream brulee. (laughs) To be honest with you, I wasn't going to have it at all. But my best friend's son, who's in his 20s, when I was in cookbook creation, I was talking about this. And I said, I'm just not going to have a dessert chapter. And he said, if you do not put a dessert in your cookbook, I will not buy it. So I just want you to know that I put cream brulee so that one 28-year-old man would buy my cookbook. (laughs) You got to do what you got to do. That's right. All right, Jen, let's talk about football for a second. Please. So I know where your allegiances lie. You're a longhorn through and through. So you wrote a piece for Southern Living in this last issue about what tailgating and football means to you. So what does it mean to you? We muddle through frankly, from like spring to August. We just try to live. We just try to keep the lights on. You're just waiting. 
I told you earlier, my dad was a sports guy. So I was raised in a sports house and he had three girls in a row. Well, I didn't slow him down. He just raised us on the ball fields and we just grew up in sports. And so this has always been part of my family. It's not just, we like watching football. We like our team. It's what we do for months on end. We plan, we gather, we cook, we scream, we rail, we rage. We quit football at least once a week, depending on the outcome. We travel, we buy t-shirts, we put our babies in little onesies. We're out of control. And so it's more than just the game. It's all of it. It's the gathering of it. And it is the fun of it. And it is the food of it. And it is the fanhood of it. I've had season tickets to Texas football for 25 years. It's just too much fun. I have a handful, a very small handful of friends who don't understand my obsession with football. And I'm just like, I'll see you in January. <laughs> Let's just put a pen in our friendship. It'll hold for the fall. Go do whatever it is you do in the fall. I don't know. And I'll see you again in January. Okay, so let's say it's a Saturday in October and Texas is playing. It's a big rivalry game. You're playing Oklahoma and you're not at the game. You're at home and you've got everybody's coming over. What are you making? I like a football spread that is not going to take a lot of labor in real time. I like whatever I can do to front load the food. So that it is ready, it is done, it is sitting on warm. You can feed yourself when you feel like it. But I don't want to be in the kitchen doing all the work in the middle of the game. I'm way too serious of a football watcher for that. So I am the person who likes sliders. I will have a huge vent of pulled pork or shredded brisket. In a crock pot or something. In a crock pot, exactly. Plugged in on low all day long. Here's your bread. Here's all the fixings. Make it when you want. Here's all the stuff that goes with it. And people can self-serve. That to me is the most fun. And nobody is stuck doing cook and host duties the whole time. Also, big rule in all of our football watching parties, which is every single weekend, is it's potluck. Nobody has to do everything. It's too much. So it is potluck. You do your part. I'll do the main if it's at my house. Everybody else brings everything else. And so that just spreads it out. And also we end up eating better because everybody brings their good football food, which is also real trashy in a good way. We're not going to eat a salad. That's not it. (laughs) Save that for another day. That is not for Saturdays. No time to be healthy. Oh my gosh, no. There's not a vegetable in sight. Unless it's like corn dip, you know, (laughs) or like... There's jalapenos right. in the thing. And that's a vegetable. It grows in the ground. So, yeah, that counts. Potatoes, that's a vegetable. Chips. So, I got to ask you about Tyler. Okay. Your partner, Tyler Merritt, who is not a Texas fan. Correct. He is an Alabama fan. So, how do y'all manage that? Oh, it's so upsetting. I said I wasn't going to do that. Instead, I go and fall for an Alabama fan. The worst. The absolute worst. I'm sick of it. I'm just sick of it. We disagree to part ways Saturdays. I'm like, just go be with your people. Whatever it is you do in the Alabama world to keep this winning streak out forever. Just pray to your gods, I guess. And let's rally afterward. If we didn't have a victory, 
I need you to give me some space because you surely did. He understands the emotional rhythms of dating a Texas Longhorn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jen, I just have one more question for you, and it's a softball. What does it mean to you to be a Texan? Oh, goodness. It's actually a complicated answer these days. But this is home. And this is where I also created a home and built a family. I built my whole adult life here, really. And so to me, on our best day, when we've got our best foot forward, Texas is a place where I know all my neighbors. We all have each other's numbers. We holler at each other over the fence. And the next thing we know, we've lost three hours on their porch. If something goes wrong, you will not be alone. You just won't be. It'll be your best friends and your random neighbor. Everybody comes to the rescue in equal measure. And for the most part, when you can find a way to get out of the fray and just live in real life, this is a place where we gather around a lot of things that we have in common. It's family and it's our neighborhoods and it's good food. And we mostly all want the same things. We want our kids to be safe. We want our families to be connected. Um, we want our communities to be beautiful. And on Texas's best day, we exemplify all of that. I sent one kid to college. She told me when she was going to be a freshman in college, she's like, I got to get out of Texas. I'm going to go to the East Coast where it is cosmopolitan. I'm going to go where people are critical thinkers. I am going where it is sophisticated. I'm like, fly, little bird. Go, go. She never knew anything but Texas her whole life. She made it one half of one year and called home and went, Mom, I'm way more Texan than I thought I was. <laughs> I am so sorry, but I need to come back. So it gets in your blood. Texas. It really does. So I hope to continue to help make it kinder and safer and more beautiful for my kids' generations and their kids too. Amen to that. Mm. Well, Jen Hatmaker, thanks so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you for having me. I'll come back anytime. Next time you're in Austin, I'll take you to Polvo's. You will get the fajitos aguajillo and you will eat them with the raisins. I will do it. I promise. I'm in. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jen Hatmaker. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my conversation with the fashion designer, Billy Reed. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.